It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the second week seminar of the Middle East Center. My name is Eugene Rogan. You've probably figured that out by now. And it's, as always, my great pleasure to welcome you back for a lecture addressing the critical issues of our time. And with a title like, did you call your title, Should We Give Up? Something like that. Something like that. Thank you. You have to wonder if the credentials of the speaker are totally up to the occasion. <laughs> <laughs> but Yus Hulterman, Program Director for Middle East and North Africa, the International Crisis Group, brings a career of experience to the analysis and study of the Middle East with all of its trouble spots. He's been working for the International Crisis Group in a wide range of analytic capacities since 2002. But before that, he was working on the study of Arvin in Human Rights Watch from 1994 to 2002. And then a research coordinator at the Palestinian Human Rights Organization at in Ramallah. He took his doctorate in sociology from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and has published a number of prominent works, A Poisonous Affair, America, Iraq, and the Gassing of Halabcha, published by Cambridge in 2007. And Behind the Intifada, Labor and Women's Movements in the Occupied Territories by Princeton in 1991. And you will, of course, have seen his work, if not in the International Crisis Group publications. Please start reading them immediately. The best analysis on the Middle East and its politics, pretty much anywhere. But also, if you can contribute to a wide range of publications in the New York Times, New York Review of Books, London Review of Books, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, and Matthew. I would say on the strength of that CV that his concern that it might be time to give up could be well-founded, but reading his work over the years, I suspect that he's not going to leave us with the message that you have embarked on the wrong field of study, that giving up is really not an option, but insightful analysis and better solutions could not be the time there. Would you welcome you to the show us how So, thanks for coming. Very pleased to be here. Thank you, Eugene, for your very kind introduction. Toby, for inviting me here. Toby and I traveled together to Bahrain back in 2011, maybe 2012. You were there. 2011. I went back 2012, but then you were already banned, probably. That's occupational hazard of our profession. We get banned from places. But it feels good to say the right thing sometimes. Mm. So thanks, Eugene, also for introducing the International Crisis Group. I'll just uh, maybe say a little bit more about it. You're a conflict prevention organization. And check, last checking, we didn't prevent anything. Certainly no conflicts. But we're pretty good at organizing. And so at least part of our name is, is right. And we're the International Crisis Group, which people always ask, do you solve crises or create them? And we get this question especially in places where we do work in areas of armed conflict from the conflict actors and they uh, they're always a little bit skeptical about us especially our recommendations which they invariably do not like and sometimes really piss them off so we aspire to piss off everybody equally and uh, and the only thing is sometimes we, we worry about you know could they please coordinate to be both equally pissed at us because the imbalance is problematic because we'd like to, and this is probably our greatest asset as an organization, in addition to the fact that we speak to the uh, primary 
decision makers in conflict is that we are nonpartisan and that we, we, we'd like everybody to be equally happy, but that doesn't really happen. So let them be equally pissed off. And we retain our independence and nonpartisanship that way, which is a key to, to the whatever impact we have. And I've already said we don't prevent conflict, so uh, there may be other uh, measures we can use. Now, the title, uh, Eugene has already said it, I, I point to the Middle East, should we give up? I know that when you saw the title, you realized that the answer was obvious. I wouldn't put a title like that and say, yes, we should give up. So uh, that much was, uh, was just a little teaser. But then, just to confuse you, in the blur, I ended that with two questions. So talking about external actors, which is, I think, the focus of my talk. Is there a role for external actors in Europe and elsewhere in halting and even reversing the downward slide that we witness in the Middle East? given the enormity of the challenge in the history of destructive external intervention? And if so, how should they go about doing so? Now that one is a little bit harder to answer, and so the deal here tonight, as far as I'm concerned, is that I will answer the first question, and you will answer the second question, and we'll come to that back at the end when I come and ask you for ideas. So first, the analysis, how to make sense of what has become a bewildering situation in the Middle East and North Africa. So the Arab uprisings, in, uh, and actually there were not only Arab uprisings, there was also a small mini uprising in Sulaimani, Iraq, Kurdistan. So there was a bit of a Kurdish uprising, but generally they were Arab uprisings. They were a turning point or a watershed in the region. And they exemplified a governance crisis more than anything else. There was a sense, a pervasive sense of social injustice on the part of the people in the region. People had few, if any, economic prospects. They faced a situation of what I call conspicuous corruption, not just corruption, widespread corruption, high-level corruption, but corruption that is in your face and often perpetrated by the regimes and their cronies and their sort of younger generation children. You see this in Egypt, you saw it in Tunisia, you saw it elsewhere as well. And most importantly, maybe in addition to the, the lack of economic prospects and the uh, conspicuous corruption is the uh, something that is not so visible to the outsider, but is very tangible to people in the region, especially in the, the sort of the non-top green level, uh, sour green uh, level, which is the, the petty police states, and the fact that people face daily indignities from sort of low-level security forces who dominate <coughs> daily life uh, through the permit process and who extract either information or bribes from people. And that is really something that is pervasive, <coughs> and that drives people mad. And this, I think, these factors came to a head in the Arab uprising, and the, the clear example was the, 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 and the emulated himself in, in Tunisia. That wasn't an ex I mean, the emulation was an exception, even though there was another case this last week, uh, in Tunisia on the anniversary, no, not the anniversary, but in any case of anniversary of something. It could have been on the fall of uh, the that must have been. Yeah. In any case, to, to underline the fact that the, the, the grievances that gave rise to the uprising eight years ago have, have not gone away. They're still there. But the impact now is, is quite different, of course, and things haven't changed. We'll come back to that in a second. But so I think that confluence of, of factors with the trigger uh, that was given in Tunisia by a, by a guy who's desperate, obviously, this. Uh, for the, the, the uprisings. What it, what it suggests is that the, the social contract, the unwritten agreement between state and citizens or subjects, had come apart. The same social contract, as you know, at least in many places, was simply the state provides security 
and benefits in the form of healthcare, infrastructure, education, you know, at low cost, maybe food subsidies, fuel subsidies, in exchange for everybody keeping their mouth shut. And that worked, because for many people, keeping your mouth shut was not a big issue. Uh, very few people are, are overtly political or, or ready to criticize uh, rulers, especially the, the top person. So it worked for a long time, as long as, in fact, the benefits were good. But what we've seen, of course, is that oil incomes have, have gone down, and depending on the oil price, and repression has gone up. And so for many people with the corruption and everything else, the arrangement was no longer uh, on balance beneficial to them. And, and that suggests, as I said, it was a turning point of watershed, that essentially the order, which is more of a disorder, that we have known for the last 90, 100 years, has come apart. And I say that because it seems to me, and I may be wrong, uh, 10, 20 years from now we may come to a different conclusion, that essentially the Arab uprisings represented a challenge to everything that had happened before since the end of the First World War and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And that the, the order that was created, which was a disorder in many ways, a very dysfunctional order, which of course evolved a lot in, in the 90 years, was defunct uh, and could no longer deliver benefits that they once might have. And any attempts in the past to reform that order through neoliberal reforms or, what, or whatnot, essentially, uh, and, and whatever political openings were offered at, at some point, look at the Enfitah in Egypt under Sadat, that basically led to crony capitalism and in fact did not address the basic defaults of this order. And so the question is, can this order still be reformed? My sense is it cannot. Now, I think a, a, a depart a little bit to, to give you some uh, sort of historical background. I've written about this, you probably haven't seen, but the, uh, basically in order to because I mostly I don't talk to academic audiences, I talk to policymakers. And <coughs> policymakers notoriously rotate from position to position, and very few are experts on the Middle East and North Africa. They need something to help them frame the issues there. So I thought I'd come up with, with a, a framework that uh, helps them understand it. You, you, some of your historians, will probably challenge it. That's absolutely a good thing. But, but basically, I came up with five clusters of conflicts. Uh, I work for a conflict prevention organization, so we cannot prevent conflict. The least I can do is to organize conflicts in clusters. So um, the first cluster is basically the order, this order that was created after the First World War, uh, because it gave rise to a number of revolutions, uh, Egypt, uh, Iran even, even though Iran, of course, was not part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, but was under Western influence, and some wars as well. But basically, it's more the, the sort of perpetual governance crisis that we saw in the region uh, and the military coup d'etat that happened in, in the last century. And of course, that is sort of cluster 1A, because there's a cluster 1B, because not only were orders created, there were also borders. And uh, they were set then. And if you look at the, the victims of those borders, well, first of all, there were the Arabs themselves. There was Arab nationalists who felt that there should be a single Arab state. They didn't get that, obviously, when England and France were competing for influence and set up uh, individual states. They divided the region up, and you see the results on this map. And so, so at least they lost out. And though, over time, the Arab nationalists bought in to the borders that existed, and in fact have, have emphasized them. And today, nobody among them wants to change those borders. The second group of victims very much wants to change the borders, only in their areas, which is the Kurds. The Kurds 
think they were promised uh, a state back uh, after the uh, collapse of the Ottoman Empire. They didn't that well. Until today, they have suffered living in four separate countries where they are suppressed. And until today, they uh, have tried to create their own state without any concrete results, even though in some places they have made some headway and these gained a uh, measure of autonomy. The third group, of course, is those who felt defeated by the cancellation of the uh, Islamic Caliphate by Ataturk in the 1920s and who want to recreate some kind of entity for Muslims wherever they may be in the Muslim world. And the Islamic State group that emerged a few years ago is the, uh, sort of the latest attempt <coughs> at creating a new caliphate. Probably not like the old one, but in any case it's the same notion taken forward. So that has also seen a number of topics clearly the Kurds have uh, pressed on and time again for greater freedoms. The second cluster is the creation of the State of Israel. And what preceded it, uh, the Belfort Declaration in 1917, and then the creation of the State of Israel, which to Arabs was clearly an attempt by, again, the colonial powers to further divide the Arab world and therefore to better control it and extract resources. For Jews, it's maybe an entirely different perspective, but if you look at it from, from the Arab perspective, this is very much part of that. And clearly, that particular conflict that started with uh, Jewish integration under British colonialism uh, in the 20s and 30s led to a number of conflicts, and of course, the Great State of Israel, then the war in 1948, and then 67, 73, 82, and onwards until even, you know, even recently there were uh, clashes between Hamas and Gaza and, and Israel uh, contained for now, but that war is ongoing, or that set of wars. And we will certainly see another round of that in the not so distant future. But these are sort of distinct and discrete set of conflicts that don't necessarily relate to other conflicts. The third cluster derives from, from the Iranian Revolution. The, the Iranian Revolution itself, since 1979, was a response to the oppression of a, of a secular, Western backed monarchical regime in Tehran. It was replaced in the revolution by a uh, justice oppressive, theocratic, or non secular. Uh, Republic. And so it set off a, uh, a spiral that took a sectarian character because the Muslims in, uh, in, in, the, in, sort of in, in the revolution took an Islamic character, took a Shia Islamic character because the majority people, uh, population in Iran is Shia. So it set off a, a dynamic with, with the Sunni world and that also to a number of conflicts. We'll come back to that. The fourth cluster, you can date it in different times and I'm sure I'm going to be challenged on this. I sort of time it also in 1979. It's the, uh, the siege of Mecca, which set off an intra-Sunni dialogue. It came itself as a reaction to the Islamic Revolution in Iran, but it set off an intra-Sunni dialogue. Uh, it was uh, the siege itself was defeated, as you know, but it gave rise to a strong effort by uh, Saudi Arabia to export uh, the Wahhabist preaching by supporting mosque building and paying of clerics and distribution of literature a really intolerant version of, of Islam. It also uh, triggered a larger debate which had already pre-existed between the Muslim Brotherhood, the strong political uh, movement in Islam, and, and others, especially again the Wahhabis. And over time it gave rise, though not directly, to the jihadism that we have seen in, in recent years, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State being the main groups representing that. So that's the fourth plus. And again, we've seen a number of conflicts coming out of that particular uh, situation. See clearly the, the dispute between Saudi Arabia and Emirates on the one side and Qatar on the other uh, falls in that category. And the fifth cluster is essentially 
the fallout of the Arab uprisings and the civil wars that it gave rise to, and the, the new conflicts that will come out of these civil wars. Uh, so on one hand, the fifth cluster is a combination of cluster number one or failure of cluster one, the, the, the collapse of the order that, that uh, existed for so long. Now we're going to see uh, what that will deliver in Syria, because clearly the Syrian war may be coming to an end in a certain way, but it may give rise to new conflicts as well. So why did the Arab uprisings fail? And I would say the main reason is that the uprisings lacked a structure and a leadership that had a vision and that had a plan uh, or solutions for the future. Even in Egypt, where the, well, the leaders of the uprising as such didn't congeal, but the Muslim Brotherhood stepped in and uh, won the elections, but it also didn't have real answers and ended up being rather exclusive in, in constitution drafting and eventually of course, it was also actively undermined, uh, but eventually it was overthrown. And so that experiment failed. In Tunisia, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, branch there, or branch, not the right word, but the affiliate, saw the writing on the wall and decided preemptively to seize power. And that has actually been the only successful experiment so far of an Arab uprising state going through a transition. But even there, the situation remains deeply fragile. In other places, the polarization has grown, and in some of them, uh, we've seen the uprisings turn into a civil war. So Yemen, Libya, and Syria are the main examples of that. But they're not the only outcomes. We've seen two other outcomes. One is the Egypt case, and maybe, again, in the future Syria case, sort of the return of what this individual is called a fierce state, uh, very oppressive, and yet inherently fragile, because it lacks legitimacy. And they're sitting on top of deeply polarized societies. And then you have the sort of in-between states, the Tunisias, but also the states that didn't really go through the Arab uprisings. There were some protests here and there. You can talk about uh, Jordan and Morocco and Oman. You can talk about Lebanon. You can talk about occupied territory, Palestinian territory. And none of them went through any serious form of uprising. And they are sort of in-between. And that puts them in a category. We'll come back to that. I think from a conflict uh, perspective, or conflict prevention perspective, we, we see now the emergence of a couple of alliances, or sets of alliances, I should say. The first alliance is an anti-Iran alliance, with on one side Iran and its allies and proxies in the region, all non-state actors, and the Syrian regime. On the other hand, a US-led alliance that includes Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, maybe Egypt. And it's not much of an alliance, frankly. It's, it's a very loose one. They, they have one thing in common, that they're all anti-Iran, uh, but they all have different priorities and different ways of going about this. The second set of alliances is, is the one I mentioned between Saudi Arabia and, and the Emirates, also Egypt in this case, opposed to Qatar and Turkey, with Iran sort of in the background on the other side as well. And these, these two sets of alliances are actually coming out of the cluster three and cluster four sets of conflicts, and they're intersecting. Now, the reason the reason I raise this issue of the clusters and why I think it's a useful way is because uh, what we've seen is that these clusters started out as essentially separate sets of families of conflicts, but they've come to intersect. And what we see today is that you, you can find places, and Syria is the, the prime example, where all the five clusters intersect. You see cluster 1A and 1B, so it's a challenge, by a popular challenge to the regime, because it no longer is capable of governing, and as well as a uh, challenge to the borders. The Kurds in Syria are challenging the border. 
cluster two, Israel is, of course, uh, involved in Syria, going after Hezbollah, which has moved from Lebanon to Syria. That's a cluster two conflict. Hezbollah itself is a creature of cluster three because it was established by Iran in 1982. And Iran has become involved because when it saw that Bashar al-Assad teetered, in order to protect that supply line to Hezbollah, Iran became heavily involved in, in preserving that regime in Syria. So now we see a direct Israel-Iran confrontation. Uh, so the cluster two has expanded to include Iran as well. Uh, and of course, that is the Iran-Islamic revolution, not the Iran of the Shah, that, that would have gone differently. The, the fourth cluster we've seen in Syria as well. We've seen the, uh, the interest-sunni debate. We've seen the evolution, first of all, the crushing of the Muslim Brotherhood, but also the evolution of uh, jihadist groups. And in fact, the jihadist groups fighting each other, Al-Qaeda and, uh, and Islamic states have been at each other's throats. And then cluster five, again, we have to see what happens to the conflict as it uh, morphs. Now, again, when I speak to policymakers, it, it is important uh, in framing policy that you understand that you see uh, surface phenomena and you see a particular conflict playing itself out, like we just saw on the border between Israel and Syria, so the uh, confrontation between Iran and Israel. So that's clearly a situation that, that deserves de-escalation, to say the least. But if you want to address this issue and you neglect to look at the other drivers of conflict in Syria from the other clusters, then you're not going to make any headway in addressing the Syrian conflict. In fact, you may make matters worse. So the lesson here is that you need to be aware of all aspects of the crisis with the various drivers before you proceed with policymaking. Now, the question is, before we get to sort of the, the role of outside actors, what is happening on the ground in terms of those who led these uprisings and who lack the vision and the leadership and the structure to uh, bring them to, to a more concrete result, a new order, maybe, at least individually in individual countries? There still exists, of course, and in some places with greater strength than others. The thing is, people have had, had a taste of freedom, and they realize that there is something out there that is attainable if they play their cards right, and maybe if they have a leadership and structure, etc., etc. In other words, it's a, it's a good lesson, but they have a taste of freedom. They also realize, and that's where I came from, is, is that, that the regimes that they face are not invincible and are vulnerable, in fact, are, are, are inherently weak. And that doesn't mean that everybody is now going out back into the street to protest. I think, uh, to the contrary, that is uh, unlikely to happen. But all the same, the regimes have shown cracks, and that uh, in the future can make, make a difference. And the third thing that uh, people have is, is they have new tools at their disposal in terms of social media, which already existed in 2011, and also smartphones that will allow for communication that is more difficult to interfere with by oppressive regimes. And they have the advantage, which is sort of a, a leading advantage in other ways, is, is that the, the, the societies are deeply divided. That gives, that is both a problem for the societies, but it also is an opportunity because that means that you, you can find support in these situations. Now, these are the assets that they have on balance. This is not enough. What plays against it is that people also are afraid that new one freedoms or the prospect of gaining freedoms may give rise to chaos and state collapse. Because that is what happened in 2011 in a number of places, as we have seen. And it is certainly something that regimes have manipulated very effectively perspective of collapse and all the chaos that, and, and radicalization that derives from it. Secondly, there is still no answers. There is still no vision. 
nobody has answers to the very deep economic and social challenges that exist. And thirdly, the channels for political participation are blocked. So people don't even have a way of voicing ideas, opinions, and coming up with, uh, with new proposals if they exist. But in some places, we see some of it. For example, in Iraq today, despite the chaos we've seen, uh, you see a lot of stuff bubbling up from civil society, ideas that are trying to get around the blockages that exist at the political level, where it is really totally blocked. It's not dictatorial or democratic, it's just dysfunctional, but things don't work. And yet ideas are coming up to deal with some of the deeper challenges, climate change, for example, that exist. Now come to the role of outside actors, because we are in a sense outside actors, not all of you probably, but in any case, uh, again, I talk mostly to, to Western policymakers, Russia as well, and there is a, uh, a real problem with how the outside world deals with this particular region. Uh, I'm sure it's not exclusive to it. So first of all, uh, looking at the literature on the region and sort of what kills it, we see that it hasn't, hasn't much changed in 10 or 15 years. We knew already uh, from the, uh, the UN Human Development Reports uh, 15 years ago what the main problems were in the region. And warnings were loud and clear, and they were listened to, but no action was taken to address them. And there was a lot of resistance internally, of course, to, to the kind of change in reforms that were really desperately needed. But so we have the same analysis still, but I think the situation has dramatically changed. We are now in a post-Arab uprising order, or chaos, if you want, and we need to come up with new ways of addressing it and of building up new structures. I think also outside actors for the longest time, until today, have bought into what, is, what some people call the stability paradigm. Essentially, it's the other social contract between the outside powers and the regimes in the region, whereby the regimes get Western support for, for security uh, services, uh, intelligence sharing, uh, military support, uh, weapons, in exchange for resource extraction and keeping things quiet. Uh, but that, that's not working. And the yeah, uprising showed it's not working. Uh, there's a real you know, limited shelf life to this approach. But that continues with Egypt today and with Algeria and with other states that are still standing and that are the fierce states that uh, continue to exist. And so Western states and Russia in its own way and Syria uh, are perpetuating an order that has become unsustainable. And it can only go on for so long. And you add to this that when it comes to, to Europe, for example, and the United States, the top priorities in the region are two. One, the threat of jihadists who come back or go to uh, the West and create trouble, set off bombs, set off themselves, whatever, as bombs. And secondly, migration, uncontrolled migration and refugee flows. And so the response invariably has been an overly securitized one by bombing and defeating the Islamic State militarily, but not really addressing the, the very deep political problems that gave rise to these, to these groups in the first place. It consists of putting boats in the Mediterranean that intercept migrants, but it doesn't go to the real problem, which is you know, what is causing the migration flows in the first place. And of course, at least in, in, in Europe, this, these are very difficult issues to address because what you will need to do is to go for the deeper drivers of conflict and, and migration and come up with solutions that are long-term and try to sell that to a parliament. People respond to, to violence. Um, they want revenge at the deepest level, or they want something to be done to protect them, but they don't want to invest in things that, and certainly politicians don't want to invest 
and things that are quite of visible results. And so, from the outside world, the situation uh, looks like it's, it's doing more harm than good. And again, sustaining an unsustainable order and probably enhancing the, uh, the manifestations of this jihadism and others to actually be addressed in different ways. Now, what should be done? This is where we fall short, and uh, of course I want to come, come back to you, but I'll go through the three categories of, of situations, the, the civil chaos situations, the civil war, this uh, dissolved states, uh, what should happen there, then we have the fierce states, and then we have the sort of the in-between state. In the first category of the Yemen's and the Libyas and the Syrians, Syria maybe today, we need to find better ways of de-escalation and of conflict resolution in the end and peace building. The only mechanisms we have at the moment, or the only mechanism, is United Nations mediation. And United Nations has its own problems. Uh, there's trouble at the top, at the Security Council level, in some areas more than in others, but generally the, the capacity is very limited. And what we lack, and for better or for worse, because I, I, I say this with care, we lack an arbiter that can actually guarantee uh, peace deals and ceasefires and enforcement. The United States played that role in some cases in a positive way, in other cases it was clearly partisan and didn't play a constructive role, but um, right now there's no one except in Syria where Russia is playing that role. Because Russia actually has fairly effectively mediated between Iran and Israel and has prevented an outside conf conflagration there between the two. This is a, a real problem, and I think that, that the, the only way forward is for the outside actors to create space for the regional and local actors to work things out. And I see this as a sort of a concentric circles in reverse situation. Concentric circle being co conflicts start locally, not always, but uh, in many cases with the Arab uprisings they did. And then they sort of spread and uh, they draw in the regional actors, like Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, others, Turkey. And then, uh, eventually, they also bring in the global actors, uh, the United States and Russia, Russia and Syria, of course, not elsewhere, and uh, but the United States, and uh, to some extent, the European Union, but it has been mostly on the sidelines. And so, in order to address these issues, you need to go in reverse. The global powers cannot solve any of these problems, but they can allow them to be solved by creating a space through having some kind of common vision of what the region ought to look like, or could look like. Then the regional powers would have to do the same, some kind of new regional security architecture, which would have to be uh, mediated by the global powers if they have their common vision, which is a big ifs, and it's not happening tomorrow. Uh, but if you want to have a vision for the future, you need to look at how this could materialize, and I think that is the way to look at it. And then eventually the local actors in, in Yemen or elsewhere can start to settle the problems without the fear of a spoiler coming in and messing things up again. So that's for the, the situations in conflict and chaos. The second one's the fear, uh, sorry, let, let's go first to the, to the in-between states. Because there's opportunities there. Because they are not autocratic regimes, or they are mildly autocratic, uh, but there are a lot of openings. And there's opportunities for reform. Some states are quite pro-Western, like in Morocco or Jordan, or even in Lebanon. And so you can exercise positive influence. You can also exercise negative influence, but <laughs> I would call for it exercise and positive influence. And that would require taking a step back for Western states and, and self-examining some of the actions that have taken place in the past. There's often talk, and it has been, of sort of partnerships between the European Union, for example, and states in the region. These partnerships are not equal. They're deeply unequal. So they're not really partnerships. 
essentially the agenda is being imposed. And I think it's critical that this be reassessed and that these partnerships are, are if they are to be partnerships, are actually taking into account more the, the local uh, agendas and priorities. And part of that, I think, is that we've, what we've seen is that there is often a selective uh, approach by Western powers to the actors. There is uh, a clear distaste of Islamists, for example. But Islamists are a critical part of the region, whether we like it or not. And to ignore them and not to include them in efforts to rebuild institutions, for example, is going to go wrong from the get-go. Mm -hmm. The focus should be on, on local governance and local legitimacy, because you see, even in areas of conflict, by the way, but uh, sorry, in countries in conflict, but maybe in areas where the fighting is not taking place, let's say in Libya and Misrata, for example, mm -hmm. or in north, northeastern Syria right now, which may change to under the Kurdish control. But you see areas that are actually being run pretty well, and there are real models there for governance, and these can be supported. Not to the extent that eventually uh, they break up the country, because I think, again, the, no, no one in these countries, other than, again, the Kurd, want these countries to break up, certainly not in Africa, no Kurds. But the local governance experiments can be prove very useful once you start rebuilding the state, because the states have been so centralized and uh, autocratic that, that, that created the crisis in the first place. And so a different model should probably be attempted without, however, undermining the state, because in the end, you need a state that can run a decentralized society. Or state. You, need, you need a central state that runs a decentralized state. Does that make any sense? <laughs> anyway, uh, it didn't come into any sense. Uh, the other one, <laughs> no, there is, there is something that, that, is, that is true, to, uh, and uh, generally, decentralized state does require some centrally organized uh, functions, and I think uh, without that, you have chaos. So the, the real question is the, the degree of devolution and the nature of the devolution. Uh, the other thing is, uh, in these countries also, in order to prevent things from sliding backward and, and collapsing, Western states can invest more in preventative diplomacy. It's often forgotten, but it's, uh, and I think the European Union in particular, which doesn't have hard power and has lost essentially for now the United States as a sort of a backup hard power, it has lots of money to give, but it actually also has a role to play in preventative diplomacy because it has uh, relative neutrality in a number of places and it's certainly not perceived the same way as the United States perceived or, or Russia. Now we come to the, the other category of the fear state. These states are desperately in need of reform and they are totally impervious to any form of reform. And that is the problem. And there is no easy solution and I don't know what to do. In this case, uh, you look at the, at, the, at the Sisi, for example, any attempt to try to nudge Egypt toward reform is countered uh, and, and resisted uh, and, and kept out. But the, the situation is, is inherently unstable, and Egypt is one of those countries that is too big to fail. It shouldn't collapse, and it will create uh, problems that, uh, that are of a magnitude that we simply haven't seen yet so far, coming to European shores, for example. And Egypt is the biggest uh, Arab country, so obviously it's going to be uh, hugely chaotic. So how to prevent that from happening? Well, to encourage reforms is critical, but reforms are not accepted. The best that could happen, and I'm not advocating it, is, is another coup d'etat with another leader saying, you know, CC failed to address the deep economic and social challenges that exist, so let this give it a try. I don't expect another revolution. Uh, unless the coup goes bad and cracks appear in which people can rise up, but 
Otherwise, the only sort of change I can I can forecast in Egypt is an internal coup. But that is only going to bring very temporary sort of band-aid solutions, and it doesn't really uh, address the deeper ones. So Egypt is, is the one that would keep me up at night if I were the person who stays up at night. Unfortunately, <laughs> I sleep very well. Finally, so you know, if as the Western world, and we also make the same point for Russia and Syria, if we if we don't change our ways and our overall approach and, and adopt certain principles in addressing the Middle East and don't just see it as as a threat or as a way to fight the opponent or the competitor, but we look at it as, as a region that has huge potential still, uh, and if we want to look at it in the long term, look at it as a threat, but then think about what you can do to actually prevent the threat from turning into a nasty reality. So we, we need to adopt these new principles. And these will be acts of both commission and omission. I think the acts of omission may be the most important one. Because in the end, it is really about doing no further harm, mm -hmm. uh, which is an easy thing to say, but it's the hardest thing to, to carry out. Mm -hmm. So I leave it at that. And I thank you for your attention. And I do hope that uh, you will now uh, come and come up with not only some questions that will challenge me, but also uh, with some answers to these very difficult ideas that will help us go forward in this very conflicted region that we all love. Thank you.